James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was almost 23 years ago on the morning of May 7th in the year 2000 that he stood before his congregation and he made a stunning announcement. He had cancer. He was going to die. He had been diagnosed just a few weeks earlier, the morning of Good Friday. And then he got up that evening and preached a Good Friday service. He kept the news from the congregation, sharing it only with his closest family and friends through Easter, through the famous Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology that was held later in April that's still held every year on the East Coast. He got through the busy season of the church until he stood before them on May 7th to share this sad news. And it was only about six weeks later that he actually died on June 15th of that year. That morning, as his congregation struggled to comprehend the news that he had shared with them, he paused as a good pastor, and he gave them advice on how to pray for him. This is what he said. A number of you have asked what you can do. You are praying, certainly, and a relevant question, I guess, when you pray is, pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles happen, Boyce went on to say, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. I wanted to begin with that story because I think that you and I forget when we come to passages like Mark 1 that miracles are rare by definition. Miracles are unusual. Now that's not the sense that we get from reading the Gospels, is it? The sense that we get from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that Jesus is a miracle machine. Like he is wandering through Israel, touching people and healing them. Everywhere he goes, even people will come up to him without him knowing it, and they will touch him and be healed. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching to the household of Cornelius, He summarized Jesus' ministry by saying that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. I mean, think about that. Of everything that Peter could have said to summarize Jesus' ministry, he focused on the healing that Jesus provided. I have to ask But what was the point of all of that healing? In verse 31, Peter's mother-in-law is healed of her fever. Does that mean that she never had a fever again? 
The people in verse 34 that Jesus healed from various diseases, did they never suffer again? You could go over to John chapter 11 and look at the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, whom Jesus raises from the dead. He still died. So why is it important for Jesus to be the great physician? What's the point of Jesus' healing touch? This morning, I want to do two things with you. I want you to understand as you leave this morning what the purpose of the miracles of Jesus is. I want you to understand what the point is of Jesus' healing ministry. And then second, I think we need to have a hard conversation. What happens when the miracle we're praying for doesn't come through? What happens when we have to come face to face with our own disappointment in God? So first, what are the miracles for? What's the purpose of the healing ministry of Jesus? Remember here at the beginning of Mark, Jesus is at the very beginning of his public ministry. And as we read earlier in the chapter, the core message of his ministry is that the kingdom of God is at hand. You and I hear that message and we immediately begin to think, oh, that's Bible language. That's religious language. But the people that Jesus was talking to would have had a sense of what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God. Now, they couldn't see it around them, of course, because Herod, who was a descendant of Esau, was on the throne of King David at the time. And so they knew that something was wrong, and even Herod himself wasn't really the power, was he? Pilate was the power behind the throne. And it was Rome's laws, not God's laws, that were being enforced in the promised land under the authority, under the oppression of a centurion boots. But when God, when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, the people of God heard an ancient echo. They knew that he was speaking of a time when God's people would be drawn together into a place of safety to be ruled over by God himself. That there would be blessing in the land, that there would be peace, that finally the people of God would realize the true purpose of God's work in their midst. It's an ancient echo because God's people had been displaced. Because of their disobedience, they had been driven into exile. And even though there had been a return back to the promised land, something was different. It wasn't a descendant of David on the throne. It wasn't God's laws being fulfilled and obeyed. It was as if the exile was still in effect. It was as if the people came back, but God didn't. But then Jesus shows up. 
And he says, it's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king has returned. God is now at work fulfilling all of his promises to his people. Renewal and transformation are beginning to work their way through the creation. So when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law here in Mark chapter 1, or when he stays up late at night healing the people of Capernaum and casting out the demons, he isn't just doing something nice. He isn't just doing a good deed. He's actually enacting the reality of the kingdom of God. He's showing people what the kingdom of God looks like. The people in Jesus' day could hear an ancient echo. You and I can look forward to get a description of the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 21 gives us probably one of the fullest visions of God's kingdom. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Folks, I don't think we can comprehend that. I don't think we really know what that means. Because even on our best days, something hurts. Even our deepest joys are tinged with some sorrow, with some regret. But the men and women and children of Capernaum are restored to health. Their lives are transformed in miraculous ways. They see, even if just for a season of their lives, they see what the kingdom of God is like. Can you imagine the scene outside Peter's home that night in Capernaum? The entire city stretched out in front of his door as they bring those who are sick, as they bring those who are possessed and oppressed, as Jesus spends time with each one healing them. It kind of reminds me of that old hymn that we sang growing up. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. God was with man. And he was wiping away every tear. He was turning back the power of death and hell. The miracles of Jesus pointed people to that reality. 
to the kingdom of God. This is why the Gospels speak of the miracles as signs. The miracle isn't the point. The sign points to something greater. In John chapter 20, John says that the miracles of Jesus were a demonstration of Jesus' divine sonship. In Matthew chapter 9, the miracles, Matthew says, are signs to show that Jesus has the power to forgive. Whatever is going on around Jesus when he is miraculously healing people, the point of it all is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. Friends, don't think of Jesus as a healer, setting up a a tent revival where everybody comes to bring their, their, their folks with hard issues to Jesus. Jesus doesn't go up and down the nation of Israel finding every sick and demon-possessed person so that he can heal them. In fact, next week, we're going to see that sometimes he hides from people who want healing. The miracle isn't the point. The miracle points people to the kingdom of God. Everyone who was healed that night in Capernaum experienced a little resurrection. Bodies that were broken down by disease, lives that were constrained by illness, the power of the evil one, Christ triumphed over it all with his healing touch. He came face to face with real suffering, with real sadness, and he gave real relief. He restored God's order. He restored God's purpose in people's bodies. And at least for a minute, he helped people to see what will happen to the whole world when Jesus comes again, when the God, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Folks, as I look around this sanctuary, as I think about the people that were in the first service, I know that many of you have prayed, prayed for a miracle. After suffering miscarriage after miscarriage, you pray. You pray for a miracle, but then there's no heartbeat on the monitor once again. Or the doctor had to sit you down and share the hard news about a birth defect and the baby that is in your womb. And though we prayed and prayed, the baby still died. For some of you, the cancer has not gone away. You wake up every morning in pain. 
There hasn't been healing. There hasn't been restoration in your life or in the lives of those you love. And instead of Jesus meeting you in your hour of need, I think some of us feel like God is hiding. What do we do? What do we do when God doesn't give us the miracle that we're seeking? Miracles, Dr. Boyce reminded us, are by definition rare. So more often than not, the answer to our prayer won't be a miracle. More often than not, the answer to our prayer is God's calling us to walk with Jesus through our suffering. To trust Him. Even when the answer to our prayer is different than what we long for. And to remember that the sign isn't the point. The miracle isn't the point. Instead, it points to what is really promised. Folks, what's really promised, it's not temporary relief. What's really promised is not a healing that will eventually fade away. What's really promised is not a life that will end in death. What's really promised is the death of death itself. What's really promised is the renewal of all things. What's really promised are new and glorified bodies. What's really promised is a new creation. And right now, in the words of Hebrews 2, right now, we don't yet see everything in subjection. We don't yet see this kingdom in its fullness. In other words, the effects of the kingdom haven't yet touched every cell, every nerve, every bone, every organ of our bodies. And even though death, the final enemy, even though death itself has been defeated, you and I still feel death every day in our mortal bodies as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. But friends, the promise is that this mortality will put on immortality. The promise is that this which is sown in weakness and dishonor will be raised in glory. Despite all of the time and the space in the Gospels that are given to events like this, the ministry of Jesus wasn't just a healing ministry. Because more than curing the body, Jesus intends to cure the soul. He was concerned for Peter's mother-in-law. That's why he raised her up back to health. 
but he was more concerned about the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That's what propelled him to the cross. And friends, that's what he is after in your life too. Well, Eric, does that mean that that we don't pray for healing? Absolutely not. We pray for healing every Sunday morning. Several of you have asked for the elders to come in the words of James 5.13 to anoint you with oil and to pray for your healing, and we have done that. But we also need to pray for God's glory to be made known in your life. Whether you are healed or not healed. Whether you live or die. Some of the last words that James Boyce ever spoke to his congregation were these. Above all, I would ask that you pray for the glory of God. Where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross. No, there Christ was wounded for our transgressions. There he was bruised for our iniquities. There the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And there, right there, by his stripes, we are healed. Let's pray. Oh God, your people suffer. And we long to be delivered from that suffering. We long to know the joy of the people of Capernaum that night whose lives were touched by Jesus. And yet, Lord, we also know that in this life we will feel the pain of death. And so more than the relief of pain, we pray for Jesus to be made known in our pain. We pray for the glory of God to be revealed, and we pray that more and more we would be drawn to him to find our hope not in our circumstances changing, not in the comfort of life, but in the one who gave his life so that we might live. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.